We have been walking through the Gospel of John step by step, and we're going to take another few steps tonight. In that book, we're seeing how John uh, followed the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to see how uh, tonight it's his desire for us to do the same. So we're going to look at just a few verses, beginning in John chapter 1, verse uh, 35, John 1, 35, and I'll I'll begin reading it to you. It says, again, the next day, John, and you have to be careful when you read the Gospel of John, always to ask yourself the question, which John is this a reference to? Is it John the Apostle who wrote this book, or is it John the Immerser, the one who baptized? Whenever in this book, consisting of 21 chapters, you see John named specifically, that's John the baptizer. That's not John, the writer of the book. Why? John, the writer of the book, wanted to call no attention to himself. He wanted to direct all attention to the Lord. So here, when we read the next day, John, that's not the writer, that is John the baptizer. He was standing with two of his disciples. You might wonder, what does John the Baptist have to do with disciples? Well, in that day, the word disciple, meaning learner, was very characteristic for various ones to choose the teacher they, uh, uh, it, uh, they uh, uh, valued and aspired to be like. And they became learners of that teacher. So John had folks who wanted to emulate his behavior. And the word disciple, or the function of the disciple was literally, literally to walk after the teacher who was admired. So if the teacher went this way, the disciples would actually follow behind so as to derive benefit, not just from what the teacher had to say, but from the way the teacher lived. And so they wanted to see, yeah, the teachers talk, but also the teachers walk. Don't you think it's good what Tony Robinson, our minister of discipleship, invited us to do? engage in the discipleship process here. You know, the Great Commission is not to simply add converts to the body of Christ. It's to make disciples. So we want to make sure after the first step, as Tony so well said, we're not remiss in helping people to grow to full uh, discipleship. So John had disciples, two in particular, and we're not yet told what their names are. And... Uh, John's disciples were looking to him, and they were walking after him, but he, while they were doing that, he was looking to another and walking after him. And we find out who in verse 36. And he, remember, John the Baptist, looked at Jesus as he walked, as Jesus made his way through the streets of Jerusalem and other places there in the Holy Land. John was watching him, Jesus, as he walked. And he said, behold, John said this, behold the Lamb of God. You've heard of that. In fact, this is not the first time John made that declaration. He did so in John chapter 1, verse 29. You could see it. It took place on the day preceding the event we're now reading. Yesterday, John said this very thing. Why is he repeating this declaration. He's telling his disciples, take your eyes off me. Look at that one, that Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. I wonder if John referred to the Lord Jesus that way every time he thought of him or saw him. 
Why would he do that? Folks, I wonder if there's anything more significant about who the Lord Jesus is and what he's done than this particular declaration. He is the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world. This is a very significant thing in John's day. Remember, John was Jewish, came from a Jewish background. He was well acquainted with uh, lambs offered in sacrifice to provide a covering uh, for sin. And it was a never-ending process. And for him finally to come upon the ultimate Lamb of God, this Yeshua, this Jesus, really transformed his life. And so he declared, behold, the Lamb of God. Folks, right now, while we are enjoying each other's company, I hope we are, um, Jewish people around the world are coming to the close of their holiest day in their religious calendar. It is called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, right now. Uh, soon, uh, they will break the fast, which they have been engaged in for 24 hours. They fast on this most holy day. They repent of sins, and they look for a means by which their sins can be forgiven. In fasting, they try to get God's attention and communicate to him, we're serious. We owe you a debt we cannot pay. Now, those Jewish people used to look upon lambs that were offered in sacrifice, but it, they can't be anymore. There's no altar of sacrifice. The temple is gone. It was destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Roman 10th Legion. And so since the temple is destroyed, no uh, opportunity for offering sacrifice, there's no functioning priesthood, you could ask today, by what means are the sins of Jewish people atoned for? Well, on Yom Kippur, Jewish people get together, and they try to offer substitutes for blood atonement. And they make promises to God, and they fast, and they make contributions of money to the poor. All good things, for sure, but they're all things that are inadequate. We sang earlier about the blood. Uh, nothing but the blood. You see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is a Jewish concept. Way back in Leviticus, we read about God's provision of Blood is the means of atonement. And so for, for John to realize, oh my goodness, all of that uh, lineup of, blood, uh, of bulls and goats and all of that, that's just a foreshadowing of the ultimate Lamb of God. And Jesus is that very one. Boy, I wish my people recognized that today. Then they could rest from their labors and vain attempts to cover up for their sin in all manner of ways, good deeds, humanitarian effort, good things, but things that fall short because nothing but the blood of Jesus can cover for our sin. And so when John realized this, I'll bet you that was the declaration he repeated every time he saw Jesus. Behold, he said to his disciples, behold the Lamb of God. And then in verse 37, the two disciples we still don't know what their names are yet. Don't look ahead. That's cheating. So thus far, up until verse 37, we know John was ministering to two disciples. We don't know who they are. The two disciples heard him speak, heard John speak, and they followed Jesus. Now, they were following. They were walking after John. But now, they transferred their allegiance from John to Jesus. 
And that was no threat to John. In fact, that pleased him. That was his function. His function was to help people connect with the Lord Jesus. He was not forming John the Baptist ministries. He was not looking to be elevated nor to call undue attention to himself. He wanted to be a means by which people's attention would be directed to the Lord Jesus. And it worked. So his disciples begin to follow Jesus. And verse 38, Jesus turned and saw them following. And he said to them, this is what he said. You have this in your Bible? What do you seek? Do you have something like that? I hope you do. If you don't, you need a better Bible. Uh, Jesus turned around and he asked this very piercing question. What do you seek? When I read it, I was perplexed because I thought he should have asked, who do you seek? But he doesn't, interestingly. He asks, what do you seek? Why? Well, the Lord knows we need something. We're on a quest for something. We're seeking something. He wants us to know what we're really seeking is not a what, it's a who. We're seeking a someone who could meet our needs. We're seeking a personal relationship with God and flesh. But we don't really know that. We're fooled into thinking it's a thing. And so he accommodates himself to that and says, what do you seek? Now, he doesn't ask this question because he needed to gain information. Any question the Lord Jesus asks is an opportunity for the one being questioned to form an answer. This would give them a chance. What do you seek? He says to John's two disciples. It would force them to reflect and make them think, what are we after? This question is perhaps the most important one for disciples of Christ to answer. In asking it, the Lord gives us too an opportunity to define our values and our goals and our aspirations. So he says, what do you see? I wonder if, if they were honest they would, in keeping with the Jewish mentality of the day, I wonder if, he would, if they would say, in answer to his questions, what do you seek? I wonder if they would say, we are seeking a political savior. For they were sorely oppressed by Roman oppression at the time. The seat of Roman government was then in the Holy Land. A few weeks ago, some of us actually visited it in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. The Romans were there, and they were terribly oppressive. The Jews were crying out for freedom from this political oppression. And so I wonder if they were honest, they would answer the Lord's question by saying, we seek a political savior. And that would have been, that would have been a mistake for them, and no less us today. I don't know if you're aware of this, but this is, is an election year. It's possible that you may have missed it, but yeah, it's happening. And uh, Christians like us, conservative, evangelical, orthodox Christians, have options. And uh, it's a matter of Christian liberty with regard to which option you, as an individual Christian, chooses to exercise as you face this election year. 
A very sad thing that seems to be happening is that we're turning on one another uh, with regard to the options we each choose to exercise. Uh, I'm guessing here, I'm no pollster, but I'm guessing in the evangelical community, um, not many will cast their vote for Hillary Clinton. Some will, but probably not many. Probably a few more than those who will vote for Hillary Clinton will uh, choose to vote for a third-party candidate or write in a name. My guess is more evangelicals will do that than who will vote for Hillary Clinton. Even more than that option, uh, my guess, I'm guessing here, uh, my, my guess is that more evangelicals will uh, choose not to vote for either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, but will show up on November 8th and vote for all other offices in the land. So from a numerical point of view, my guess is the fewest number of evangelicals exercising their options will vote for Hillary Clinton. Then maybe the next group will choose a third-party candidate or write-in candidate. And then maybe after that, there will be those who will vote but will not cast their vote for Donald Trump as a matter of conscience. And then my guess is most evangelicals, I'm guessing here, uh, will vote for, for, for Donald Trump. So there, there, there are these different options. Even as I share them, I think I can tell by your nonverbals I'm stepping on some toes, even to suggest the viability of these options. And let me just tell you, watch out for that. We cannot afford to divide uh, over the exercise of these various options. I'm telling you, uh, folks, now more than ever, we better stick together for crying out loud. Uh, the real issue is light versus darkness. And um, I, 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 I would like to just caution you, and I don't think you need much caution in this regard, but let me do it anyway. Uh, I, I hope in answer to the Lord's question, what do you seek? You are not uh, seeking for a political savior because there ain't none. Uh, you, you see, the, the, the two principal candidates... Um, need a savior, they cannot be the savior. They're really categorically no different than you or I. Uh, they have a sin nature. I don't know if you knew this. Yeah, they both have a sin nature. Theirs uh, seems to be more prominently displayed only because they're under scrutiny. But I'm really thrilled I'm not under the same scrutiny. Um, so, so uh, I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. I'm just making a statement. We're, we're, we're all in the same circle of uh, sin, and we, we manifest it. So uh, those in need of a Savior cannot be the Savior. So I, I, I would say to you, please exercise the option you feel is the best. We're all after the same thing, aren't we? We're after the glory of God, the well-being of the country, propagation of the gospel, and uh, you have freedom. And please, let's, let, let's be kind to fellow Christians who exercise their freedom of choice differently. Uh, uh, I don't think we need to have a unilateral approach to this, except that we want to do what's best in the eyes of God, which is why I think it's very dangerous to endorse any candidate, because then 
any, any flaw or foible on the part of the candidate makes us guilty by association and detracts from our primary mission, which is to be ambassadors for Christ. I didn't say stay apart from the political process. I'm just saying don't become so entangled in it that you compromise your primary calling, which is to represent Christ in the world, not Republicans, not Democrats, but to represent the one who occupies a non-elective office. Do you know that? He occupies the office only he fulfills the prerequisites for. He's the son of God. He is the son of man. He's the king above all kings. He's seated on the throne. He's the alpha and the omega. He alone is sovereign and he alone by nature is good. He's not tempted by sin. He's never tasted of it. He's repulsed by it. In fact, he did everything he can in offering his life to free us from the very penalty, presence, and power of sin. He's the one we represent. So be careful. If you're unduly enthused about a particular candidate, I think you are uh, unintentionally going to detract from the gospel message. Because in unbridled enthusiasm for a flawed candidate, you're going to give unsaved onlookers the impression that your hope is unduly placed in a political savior. And you don't want to do that. Folks, the primary malady in our country is not going to be resolved by a new administration in the White House. The primary pathology that victimizes us is not the economy, it's not the educational system, and it is not climate change. That is the most brilliant distraction from what really ails us I have ever seen. Of course, climate change is a good platform for the government because if you fall prey to it, the world's going to end because of climate change, then you're going to give the government even more permission to regulate us, which I think an out-of-control government desires. Folks, the world is not going to end because of environmental climactic catastrophe. The pollution that really, really jeopardizes the world is to be found in us, not external to us. We're polluted by sin, and our sin has separated us from God. So we read in 1 Peter 3.18, for instance, Christ also died for sin. The just for the unjust. Once for all. Why? That he might Bring us to God. That's the fundamental malady we face, alienation from the giver of life, from God himself. Now, that malady cannot be solved by Democrats, Republicans, or Independents. It can only be resolved by a Savior, by a Messiah, by the one who filled the gap between us who sin and a father, a heavenly father, who is absolutely uh, holy. So, so be careful about unbridled enthusiasm for a particular candidate because then you will persuade people your focus is uh, unduly on that candidate as savior of sorts when in fact there's only one savior and his name is the Lord his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, 
I shared this in our iConnect classes on Sunday, and I've gotten a flurry of emails. Thank you so much. And, and so I, I know the uh, cynicism, the anger, the frustration, the confusion, and all the rest. I experience a good deal of it myself, but let's not use as a barometer of the spirituality of another Christian how they're approaching this particular election. Be very careful about using that as the litmus test. Folks, I'm telling you, um, the only distinction amongst humankind are those who have the Son and those who, those who don't. Well, anyway, I wonder if when the Lord asked them, what do you seek? They would have answered, if they were honest, we seek a political savior. Folks, uh, this is a crazy day, not so day. Um, people's ad- organ- the agendas of organizations are not working. The um, education agenda, the defense agenda, the Department of Justice agenda, well, all the rest, things are just not working. But it's a great day for those of us who have a great commission agenda. Uh, therefore, Uh, I think you should study, uh, uh, reflect, be prayerful, and vote one way or the other on uh, on November 8th. I I got all that, but um, don't hate me for this. Sovereign God has the capacity to work through either candidate, even if it be in spite of them. I'm not really unduly worried. I don't think we're at the point of crisis and catastrophe if you have a great commission agenda. So what do you want to do this day when uh, it's very easy to have political discussion with people? Well, you want to find a way to turn the discussion from politics to what counts for eternity. So if you're like me, you need some gimmick. You need some way to turn the discussion. And so I came up with 40 words. There's no magic to it by no means, and you don't have to use this word for word. It's just a device, and uh, it sounds something like this. Let me tell you about the greatest things. You're talking to someone about the election, how you're doing. What what do you think about the candidates? Uh, If you don't mind me asking, how are you going to approach the election? You're talking about all this stuff, and you're talking about, and then you say, hey, hey, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It was when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins through the death of his son Jesus on the cross in my place. I got a haircut yesterday. Can you tell? I'm looking pretty good. Yeah, it was getting in my eyes, so I had to do the thing. So I'm sitting in the chair, and this young lady is cutting, and and she's just asking questions at random. And one of the questions of me was, uh, so how's your job going? Like that, how's your job? That's a good question. You know, I feel like I don't actually have a job. You don't have a job. No, no, no. I serve as a minister in a church. And it isn't like a job. It's like a privilege that God gave me. But she was all ears, you know, and I could tell that she was getting a little uncomfortable because she got real close to my ear. (laughs) And uh, so we were just talking a little bit and I said, what's your religious background, if you don't mind me asking? We're just talking. And then I just said to her, hey, uh, let me tell you about the greatest thing. I'm sitting in the chair for crying out loud. Now, she was picking up the pace. I know that. You can tell she cut me up here in the back a little bit. But anyway, 
Uh, uh, but I was, I, I, I was thinking there, you know, we're talking, and, and there I am, and I don't know what our eternal situation is and all the rest. I just need some means of, of turning the conversation, and I have found these 40 words to be quite helpful to me. Uh, there's no magic in it. It's not inspired as Scripture is, nothing like that. Some of you have said, I'm just having a hard time memorizing. But don't worry, that's not the idea. Just Come up with some means by which you can turn conversation from the throes of this day and move them to lofty truths, including the Lord Jesus Christ who descended from on high to enable us by faith to ascend with him back into heaven. These are much more important things, frankly, than what's going to happen on November 8th. So I commend to you those, those particular 40 words. Well, if they were looking for a political savior, these two disciples of John, Christ was not the right choice for them. Were they looking for fame? If so, Christ was not the right choice for them. Were they looking for an easy life? If so, Christ was not the right choice for them. Were they looking for health and wealth? If so, Christ was not the right choice for them. Were they looking for people's favor? Christ was not the right choice for them. You see what I mean? So he asks this piercing question of them and of us. What do you seek? What do you seek? Do you know this striking question? These are the first words of Jesus recorded for us in John's gospel. It's taken us this far to hear from him. This is the first thing he says. He utters these words as the inauguration of his public ministry. These are his first recorded words. They must be quite important. What do you seek? What are you looking for? What, what's the purpose of your life? What do you really want? What do you really want out of life? What really matters. And so they ask this penetrating question, and they respond. They say to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. You know why it says that? Which translated means teacher? Because a number of John's um, recipients, that is John, the writer of this gospel, were not Jewish. He was writing to Jews and Gentiles. And so John defined for them the term rabbi. Well, I mean, I happen to know this, because if, if it said here, they said to him, Rabbi, and, and then it says, which translated means teacher, the Jewish members of the audience would say, we know that. You don't, you don't have to tell us what Rabbi means. So this implies he's writing to a mixed audience. Gentle, they may not know what the term Rabbi means. It means teacher. And they say to him, where are you staying? They wanted him, didn't they? They wanted... Um, they wanted to know him. What, what do you seek? You. That's, in essence, how they answered. They were interested in fellowship with Jesus. Verse 39, he said to them, come, and you will see. Folks, do you realize nothing is easier than to get an audience with the king of kings? What do you seek? If you want an audience with the king of kings, you shall have it. We were in Israel, and I think I mentioned to you, one of our dear ladies had to remain after the main body returned because she took ill over there. I asked you to pray for her. Thank you for doing it. Thank God. She and her roommate re uh, returned to the States Monday night, and uh, they're doing pretty well. But this lady needs to have a follow-up visit with her physician here. And she told me the earliest she could get to see him is two weeks from this time. 
That's not good. She needs to see him sooner. She said, I'm trying. I told her, I'll ask you to pray that she gets to see her physician much sooner than two weeks. We have to appeal to Almighty God to work the system because this poor lady has to wait two weeks to get an appointment with a, a man, a mere man who happens to be her physician. But nothing is easier than to get a visit with the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. You just have to desire it. They do. And so he grants it. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now we know the identity of one. His name is Andrew. But what's the name of the other? We don't know. You know why? It was probably John the Apostle, John the writer, who never mentions his name in this particular gospel. I think the two disciples were Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and John. Speaking of Andrew, verse 41 said, he found first his own brother, Simon. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. When I became a believer and knew that my faith was in Jesus Christ, I thought, I'm not ashamed to tell you this, that's why Tony Robinson is so right, we've got to help new believers. I thought as a new believer, Jesus was his first name and Christ was his last name. So if I was addressing him with respect, I would say, it's really good to see you, Mr. Christ. I, I did not know that Christ meant Messiah or anointed one. And John's audience probably didn't either. So he gives them a little help. And he explains to them Messiah means Christ. See, here's the deal. Uh, Andrew found Christ and wanted to tell his brother. And that's supposed to happen that way. When a person finds Jesus, he usually wants others to find him as well. Because knowing Christ is much too good to, to keep to ourselves. Someone made the statement, it's the nature of Christian experience to desire to share it with others. We serve in Israel in a Druze, D-R-U-Z-E, village. It's a very interesting mystery religion. Thank God we've gained access to the village and the hearts of the people over time. Uh, they have a faith and uh, they never share it. It's just foreign to them to share what they know with others. And it's foreign to us not to. How could it be that the Savior would entrust to us the means of salvation and we would keep it to ourselves? No, it's just, it's just absolutely unheard of. And so Andrew came to know Jesus and introduced his brother Simon to the Lord Jesus. That's what it says, verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Peter was brought to the Lord by his brother. Statistically, most people are one to the Lord through the uh, ministry of friends and relatives. Most people are not one to the Lord by strangers. Do you know most people are not one to the Lord by Baptist preachers on Wednesday or Sunday. Did you know that? And most people think coming to church is strange today. Things have changed. But many more people think it's not strange 
for a friend or relative to share what is most important to them. Therefore, I want to challenge you to do something. Go home, not now, but soon. Make a list of your unsaved friends and relatives. Just make a list. And think about sending them a letter in which you express how you came to know Jesus and how they could as well. I want to read to you a letter I sent to my sister, oh, a year and a half ago. I've done this before. I want to do it again. She's deceased now. She passed about a year ago at the age of 71, too soon. Prior to that, I had done what I just asked you to do, make a list of friends and relatives and pen a letter to them. I'd like to read to you the letter I sent to my sister. Dear Shelley, you have gone through a lot. Three marriages, many male suitors, uh, many physical afflictions, on and on. I'm praying for you often. I, I wish I had the power to make things different for you. Life has been so hard. I'm so limited, however. This makes me turn to God for his help. He is unlimited, and he stands by, willing to help. In fact, he very much desires to help us to find our way to him. We've lost our way. We've gone our own way as if the God who made us is not there. This quest to be independent, to do our own thing, to take care of ourselves has left us lost and empty. My heart's desire, because you are my sister and I love you, is for you to find your way to God. Your sin, my sin, has separated us from him. But because he is ready to forgive, he has made a way for all our sins and wrongdoing to be forgiven. God's son, Jesus, paid it all. In his suffering and dying, he provided payment for the debt we owe God and cannot pay. Jesus paid it all. And then after dying, there was his rising up from death so that he can be alive to us and for us forever. It's no surprise to you that the number one thing I'm praying for you is that you turn to Jesus as your personal Savior. Ask him to forgive your sin. Come into your life. Be with you forever. You have so many physical challenges. I pray for you in this regard. However, the greatest need we all have is not for physical well-being. It's for spiritual well-being. Though your body is subject to so many afflictions, it is your soul that is hurting I'm therefore praying for your spiritual well-being. I know God stands by, ready to come into your life, forgive your sins, and be your Lord and Savior forever. I know this because he has done so for me and is ready to come into your life as well. In fact, here are his words about this. Please listen to them. And I shared some scripture. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Matthew said that. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. John said that, and so on. So I invite you, my dear sister, to confess to God your sins and separation from him, and then accept his forgiveness based on what Christ has done for you in dying for your sins. And then ask him to live in you and grant you peace. Here is a sample prayer. You can privately say to him, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve the consequences of my sin. However, I am trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believe that his death and resurrection provided for my 
forgiveness. I trust in Jesus and Jesus alone as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord, for saving me and forgiving me. Amen. Let me know, Shelley, if you have prayed this prayer. It isn't the prayer that can bring you into a right relationship with God. It is your heart. Please open your heart to him. His heart is open to you. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I love you, Shelley, and so does God. Stuart, I sent it. I waited for a response. She called me. She was crying. I did not hear her except the Lord. I don't know what business she transacted with him. I wish she had been more clear and definitive about things. So I could tell you with certainty I'll see her again. I can't overstep my ground. I don't know that. But I feel really, really, really good that I told her the truth. I have no regrets about that. I did not miss an opportunity. I have no unfinished business. Folks, in this day and age, when people, even in high places, are saying crazy things, profane things, obscene things, degrading things. Folks, I watched the last presidential debate. I have grandchildren. I couldn't let them watch it. Who would think we'd be in a day when you can't let your children watch a presidential debate? What a day. They'd be better off watching HBO. So everyone is spouting off the most vulgar and unrestrained, unbridled things today. Why are we reluctant to tell people about Jesus? If we say we have a heart for him, why don't we have a voice for him? Folks, I do not respect what people think enough to refrain from telling them what I believe. Do you have that much respect for a lost and dying world? They have no answers out there. We do. I dare you make a list of friends and family members. Pray over it. Pen a letter could be standard, includes scripture. Tell them how you came to know Christ. Tell them how they could send it off and leave the results to Almighty God. So in verse 42, we find out Andrew functioned as a disciple. He brought him, his brother, to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, but you shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Simon was given a new name. Why? It was a symbol of the fact that he was a new person. In the Old Testament, when someone's life changed, it was signified by a, a change in name. When someone came to have a new relationship with their creator, they got a new name. So, for instance, Jacob became Israel and Abram became Abraham. When a person entered into a new relationship with God, it's as if, well, it's as if, it's as if he or she is born again. He becomes a new man or a new woman, says he needs a new name. And so the text says, Simon would now be called Cephas. Cephas is Aramaic, and the Greek equivalent is Peter. It means stone. You are Simon, the Lord says. Ah, but you shall be Peter. You are but you shall be. Here here is who you are, 
by natural birth. But here is who you shall be by new birth. Peter appears as anything but a rock. Are you kidding me? Throughout the gospel, he, he shows himself to be a very, very flawed human being. But Jesus was not through with him yet. The name change indicated what God by grace would do in him and through him and for him. You are, but you shall be. This is a great phrase of encouragement. You are, Jesus says, but you shall be. To everyone who's come to Christ, you're fully aware of who you are. You don't even like you. You would be ashamed to be fully known, yet you are by Almighty God who knows all things. And he says, you are, I don't miss it, I'm not deceived, but you shall be. Jesus gives us the power to become. And no candidate for political office could do that. Nobody could do that. Jesus gives us the power to become. Let's not deny it. This is the way you are. I know that. But I know who you will be. Peter was a man of <coughs> intemperate, angry, unbridled, and unrestrained temperament. God saw who he was by natural birth, and yet, with Jesus in his life, he became a faithful follower, disciple of the Lord Jesus, and a very significant leader in the church of Jesus Christ. What words, what words of hope? Jesus begins with us right where we are, but he changes us into the people he wants us to be. Nobody could do that but him. So as we close, I put to you again this question the Lord asked here. What, what do you seek? If you seek Jesus, this is what happens. You become more like Jesus. And when you become more like Jesus, people see things in you that entice them to seek him as well. <clears throat> I make a... No claims to any virtue. But when Jesus began to make a noticeable difference in my life, my unsaved family members asked questions about it. You're different. What makes you tick? I remember my mother first asked me that question. You're different. Tell me about the change. And I remember others said that too. That's not because I turned over a new leaf. Oh, no, 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 no. When you seek after Jesus, what do you seek? You, Rabbi, I want to be with you. He rubs off on us. He, he changes us from the inside out. And people see this, and they ask questions, and then we get to give them an answer. So, so in closing, let this be your answer to the Lord's piercing question, what do you seek? The answer is to know you, Lord, and to make you known. This is a very great time of disadvantage for all kinds of programs and agendas in our day. But it's a time of great opportunity for those of us who have this agenda to know Christ and to make him known. I can barely think of a better time to be alive because the Lord is bringing us to a greater recognition of our bankruptcy. Folks, whoever gets elected will sorely disappoint 
the voting constituency who had an expectation of him or her that neither she or he can meet. It won't take long, it seems to me, before people have realized these folks cannot save me when they are caught up, enveloped in their own human condition. You see what I mean? And so what a time for us with our agenda. Our energy should be spent, sure, know the issues, prayerfully make a wise decision about November 8th. I got all that, but that's not our agenda. That's not what we seek. Folks, if your ambition is to seek to win the election, what a limited objective that is. It's important, don't misunderstand, but it's not nearly as important as what God calls us to. Here's the answer to the question, what do you seek? Uh, a new administration in the White House. No, 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 no. To know you and thereby to make you known. That's our agenda, folks. Don't degrade it by an undue enthusiasm for anything less. Everything is passing. Everything is passing. <laughs> but to know Christ and to make him known, this is of eternal consequence. Lord Jesus, you've made yourself accessible to us. We can get to you in an instant. You satisfy the longing of the heart of any who seek after you, not a something, a someone, by grace, you've granted that heart's desire to many of us here, but I doubt all of us. And I pray even as we sit here comfortably tonight, you would stir up the hearts of ones who have valid human needs, but who are seeking to meet them apart from you, the giver of life. Oh God, I pray those people would have a new quest, seek something different, seek you. A relationship with you, intimacy with you, communion with you. For those of us who know you, oh God in heaven, please help us to be discerning and wise enough so as not to be distracted from the number one call, which is to know you and to make you known. That's the sole reason for which we are here. Oh God in heaven, thank you for that promotion, for that calling, for that great, greatest of all commissions. Help us to have more enthusiasm in this increasingly dark day than ever before. We have much to do, much work to do, and I think people's disappointed, increasingly disappointed hearts provide fertile ground for the gospel of peace, the gospel of hope through you, the God of all hope. Thank you for making us to be ambassadors for Christ, witnesses now help us, Lord Jesus, in the days ahead to become expert witnesses, fully acquainted with the accused. You're the accused. You're accused of being a mere religious leader, a good teacher, a pretender to the throne. You're none of those things. As John declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for taking away our sin, Lord Jesus. Use us to spread that message abroad. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.